Okay. Um, I'm going to do this specifically for the bebop circle that I set up. Okay, Tim, great. Tim, you're my friend twice. Jim, you're only my friend once. I have to yeah. figure out which one is the real Tim and delete the other one. I am starting a hangout with a bebop group. Are you friends with Kirk? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm friends with both of you, Tim. Right, so here's Kirk. We're friends. Friends okay. with Tim Gaskell and Tim Gaskell. Ah. Are you, are you logged in under the Mac.com account or the me.com account? Uh, I'm logged in this on my Google Gmail. Okay, what is your Gmail? <laughs> I now have three Tim Gaskells in the Bebop circle. You know what I think, Jim? Mm. What? I, th I think we're going to lose the debate over the who by numbers. Because Tim and Tim and Tim are going to team up on us and uh, stuff the ballot box. This, this is one of the differences between Facebook and Google+, by the way, is that it's not a reciprocal thing. I had two Tims, and he wasn't seeing anything on his end because I pulled in you know, your default search when you go to look for people. People yeah. that it's just it pops up people right. from your address book, yeah. anyone you've ever sent email to. So yep. it's going and pulling old email addresses for you is what's happening. Okay, Jim, Jim, I got an idea. The podcast right, has already started. Jim, 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 you got to come right. do the intro. You got to come do the intro. Did you, yes? Did you want me to do the intro, Kirk? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to do the intro, and then this actually I think would be a pretty good Google Plus segment. Just like our, our attempt to do a video hangout and there are three Tim Gaskells and he's still <laughs> not online. <laughs> we could call this segment, Three Old Guys Try to Hang Out on Google+. Plus. No, but you and I are hanging out fine. I see you. Well, you yes, this is my point is let the record reflect that you and I hung out on Google+. Plus. But hey, I'm in, the I'm, it's the Tim Gaskell triplets who are having a problem. I'm, but I'm, in, I'm hanging out right now in Bebop. But I don't see you guys. You should see a thing that says, Kirk Biglione is hanging out. Join this hangout. It's a big button. You can't right, miss it. Okay, here's why he's not saying it. Part of the confusion here is there is no place called Bebop. Right. It's, <laughs> it's in the cloud, but each of us has a different Bebop. Each of us has a different... Circles are a context that only flows one way. My circle has no meaning to you or Tim. When I create a circle, you can't see it. The bebop that I've created is not your bebop. Can and the, you only way you, the only bebop? way you know about it is because I've told you. Can so you see if mine? you create a context called bebop, you could put anyone you want into it and start a hangout there under the name bebop, but it's going to be different from my bebop. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you guys see my – does my bebop show up? Because I put you guys – You don't see somebody else's circles. That's so, part of the thing. So Tim is so hanging out in his own bebop. And now Tim wants us to come hang out in his bebop. And I've already created a bebop. And you but, and I are hanging out here. Who is he to come along with his rogue bebop hangout? God damn it, and now Tim. we're supposed to disconnect and come join him because there are three goddamn Tim Gaskells on the Google+. Plus. <laughs> he thinks he has us outnumbered, well, but no, that's I don't not think the way. That's not the way it works. Three is higher than one. <laughs> well, I think right now you're certainly higher than either one of us. That's for sure.
So I don't understand why if I started a hangout, why it doesn't show up on your feed. Wait, wait, I see Tim's hey, hang on. I see Tim's hangout. Do you see Oh you Tim? do? Oh, yeah. See Tim's hangout too. This is why I'm saying is he's trying to get us to come join his hangout. He needs to come join ours. But why? Why? Because here we are. <laughs> Who are we <laughs> to give in to the Gaskell triplets? I'm the thing is I'm yeah. here, you're there. <laughs> if we drop off this perfectly good hangout to go join the Gaskell triplets the terrorists have won. Can you get to my profile page? Yes. Can you see? Okay, and you're seeing my profile. <clears throat> Hang on. And what's the first thing you see on my profile page? Oh. Un under posts. Hang on. Join this hangout. <laughs> Click on it. <laughs> Click on that. Join this hangout. Click on it now. And I want your brother, Tim Gaskell, and I want your other brother, Tim Gaskell. All three of you, click on it and join that hangout. Okay, Welcome hang to the hangout, Tim Gaskell. It's 7.20 p.m. on Thursday, July 14th, 2011, a little over 24 hours before the beginning of Carmageddon. And tonight on Media Loper Bebop, we have a jam-packed show for you. A traffic jam-packed show. First, Google Plus makes its debut and we wonder why people need yet another social network. Then, Netflix raises its prices and the whole internet explodes. Are they telling us to flicks off? And finally, is the Who By Numbers great enough to make our Hall of Fame? Tim Gaskell thought so. All of that in a musical moment with Husker Du. On Media Loper Bebop Episode 11, Carmageddon Time. Expect delays. Expect big delays. Good evening, and a special welcome to our affiliates in both of the Kansas cities. I'm your host, Jim Connolly, and with me as always are Tim Gaskell. Here. And Kirk Biglione. Are you in there? Last week, in case you haven't been listening to the first few minutes of this podcast, maybe the first hour, who knows, Google made their most serious entry into the, to the Web 2.0 space, unveiling Google+, which came out of the box as an intent and synthesis of the best bits of Facebook and Twitter, plus with some new wrinkles of its own. And while millions of people have flocked to it out of sheer curiosity, the question remains, do we really need another social network? Absolutely. Why? <laughs> because at least one of the ones we have now sucks. <laughs> MySpace? And because... And because the social thing is an evolutionary process, and we're still fairly early in the cycle of adoption, and we're still fairly early in terms of establishing what we consider to be a norm in our interaction online, and it's absolutely an evolutionary process. Facebook, I mean, it's interesting to you know look at how Facebook is now seen to be too big to fail almost it's the right. first social network that's too big to fail 700 million and counting but so what <laughs> it's it, it facebook is not doing anything particularly well except that it's like allowing you and me and whoever from you know we get to into the age 48 we get to annoy the fresno punks <laughs> <laughs> what is what is facebook okay, not okay. doing well 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 what anything that's not remembering the past some of us live in the present and think about the future and facebook is really a horrible place for that sort of thing so i think google plus is more well geared towards people who live in the future and in the present and are thinking about the future 
But is it a radical enough change for people to make? I don't think it doesn't have to be radical enough change. It needs to not be Facebook. It's a place for adults. No, I I like I like some of the the little tweaks that they've done. But to me, they kind of look like tweaks as opposed to major major changes. But tweaks are all tweaks are all you need sometimes with software and with with websites and with with interfaces you don't need necessarily radical reinventions of interfaces usually are bad what you need to do is figure out what the other guy's doing badly or or doing wrong or could be doing better and owning that space so would but but i my i think my my <clears throat> my one bit of uh, comment here would be that it's 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 not as radical a difference between myspace and facebook than facebook to to google to Google Plus, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, it looks fine to me, and I what I like about it is for the next six months at least, it's going to be very uncluttered compared to Facebook. It's the interesting thing I think is that um, it could have been a huge failure, but it hasn't been. It's been really well received to the point where I think it's it's certainly a credible competitor. To Facebook, you can't deny that. I mean, just it hasn't been rejected outright and openly mocked by the people who should be embracing it. I do like the idea of the um, you creating, you know, your own little social um, mini networks within the greater network. I like that idea a lot. So, so it's interesting. There are already some fairly high-profile people saying things like, "This is the death of blogging." Mm. Kevin Rose, the founder of Dig, uh, this week announced that he was redirecting KevinRose.com to his Google Plus profile because that was everything he wanted to get out of his personal web presence. Well, it may not be the death of blogging because I think that people always want to do big long-form blog posts, but I think it's going to be the death of things like Tumblr because – Tumblr never really got the social, you know, the interaction you have with your with your social graph that Google Plus has pretty much just been able to take like wholesale, maybe not wholesale, but just take over practically and you can do all the same things. You can post long posts, you can put videos, you can put you can put funny things you found on the web. And to me, a lot of what I've been seeing on Google Plus reminds me of what the things I saw on on, on Tumblr. Yeah, but there's still that that Tumblr component, which is the random element that we haven't seen from Google Plus yet. Like, show me almost like a stumble upon component. Right, show right, right. me something random, cool based on my taste that I'll like. So there are things that 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 are obviously alpha or beta. Like, you should be able to take your Google News page preferences if you've if you personalize it and pop that into Sparks. Oh yeah, all of the pieces could be better integrated. There's no doubt about that. But compare it to, you know, Facebook. Or Twitter, which doesn't have, I mean, Twitter is just very, very, very focused on the short message. And that's great. That actually, the real question is, um, how does Twitter do against Google Plus? I don't see, I see Google Plus really evolving into longer discussions, like actual long threads of interaction, almost like a traditional forum. Um, and longer posts that are maybe not long posts, but longer than you could do on 
on Twitter. When news breaks, where are you going to go? Twitter before yep. Google Plus or Facebook, really. But when you want to talk to people seriously about what news is broken, okay. you're going to be able to do it better on Google Plus yeah. than you are on Twitter because right. the 140 character limit really, really, really hampers certain types of discussion when you just want to write 150 characters about whatever you want to talk about. Yeah. The piece that's missing right now, the biggest piece that's missing right now is like a shared context. The question becomes is that millions of people have flocked to it because they're curious and because it's Google and and it's always fun to set up a whole new social a whole new uh, iteration of your social graph. But the question becomes is it the first couple of weeks or do people continue to use Google Plus a month, two months? what, four years from now? Or is it, uh, do people just go, okay, it was great at first, but I'm done because Facebook and Twitter, you know, take care of what I need for our social networks. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, it could be that people decide that, it could be that everyone's, you know, it could be that Twitter loses a little and Facebook loses a little and there's enough for Google to succeed. Um, The challenge is really when you want to go do something social, you have to think about now Three where, is this, where is this best where is this best placed? It's you know there is no normal. We're still figuring it all out. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Already, I'm tailoring posts about specifically or about essentially the same thing differently to Google Plus than I would write it for Twitter than I would write it for Facebook. But most people won't do that. Most people will just, you know, figure out a way to connect all three accounts and post the same thing on all three accounts, which seems to me yeah. as, as always it, it waste defeats the, defeats defeats the purpose. Exactly. Yeah. Each yeah. social network if if Google Plus I think if Google Plus is going to find a way past the first month of curiosity they're going to figure out or they're going to come up with a way or people are going to come up with a way to use it that's different than how they use Facebook and that's different than how they use Twitter. And they're going to go to Google Plus for the things that they can only really get from Google Plus. This is Jim Connolly with a musical moment to die for. Husker Du have been imitated from nearly the moment they figured out you could write sugar-sweet melodies and tie them to super-shred guitar and ultra-passionate vocals. Before the mid-1980s, there really hadn't been a sound like what Bob Mould, Grant Hart, and Greg Norton created. But ever since, that sound has informed dozens, hundreds, probably thousands of bands, from Soul Asylum to Nirvana to Green Day, right up through the present noise of bands like Fucked Up. But back in 1985, it's impossible to overstate how unique they sounded for a supposed punk rock band. And that specialness was exemplified in the breakdown and subsequent buildup of their greatest single, Celebrated Summer. Then the sun disintegrates between a clouds. Allowed there. 
celebrated summer was from the New Day Rising album, released only a few months after Zen Arcade, and part of a run where they released five albums, two of them double albums, and all among the best records of not just the decade, but of all time, in only two and a half years. That right there is a combination of quality and prolificness matched only by the Beatles, Elvis Costello, and The Clash. In the dead center of the 1980s, no one burnt brighter than Husker Du, which is why it was inevitable that when they broke up, they broke up so hard they've barely spoken to each other since. That has harmed their legacy, especially since it's contributed to the fact that most of their later output has never been mastered properly for the digital era. Which is a shame, because they're one of the all-time greatest rock and roll bands ever. That was Husker Du with Celebrated Summer, a song that contains a musical moment to die for. days ago, Netflix finally figured out a way to piss people off on the internet that didn't involve those ubiquitous pop-up ads. They announced a price increase. In my case, it'll go from $11.99 per month to $17.99 per month, which percentage-wise is a significant price increase for those who wish to enjoy both DVDs and streaming video. Naturally, at first, everybody went ballistic. Then they calmed down a little bit after realizing that Netflix is still a pretty good bargain. However, what makes it troubling is this. The decision to decouple DVDs from streaming, and by doing that, they're equating the value of the DVD service with the value of the streaming service. And the problem is the streaming service still has huge issues, not the least of which is availability, which we've talked about before. Guys, this seems like a huge gamble for Netflix, is it? Um, personally, I don't think so. I think it's going <clears> to, <throat> I don't think, again, they're so entrenched. I don't think they're going to, you know, there might be some churn, but I don't think it's going to be that bad. I personally will probably go to the streaming only option because I have had a DVD or a Blu-ray sitting on my TV or next to my TV for about six months that we haven't watched. So we don't use it. So there's no point in using the, the Blu-ray option or the DVD Blu-ray option. So I'll go streaming only. And, you know, <clears throat> I understand, you know, to make these deals, it's always seemed to me be an incredible, uh, incredibly cost-effective way to watch movies and TV shows if you break it down. And if you got the maximum amount of usage out of it, it would be incredibly cheap. But um, in, even if you know you went to Blockbuster or some what they used to call a video store, <laughs> um, even if you went to those like once a week, you are still, you know, the, the money is still going to be in your pocket and not blockbusters so um no i'm fine with it um i'll like i said i'm going to send my one dvd back and i'll be done with it i'll just be on streaming so, so tim yeah. um yeah. you've started watching uh louis on on the streaming because you love louis ck but you didn't really watch the first season but you're curious about it anyway and then suddenly you've watched four episodes and 
oh, the contract's up. No more Louie. So mm. now what do you do? Uh, I move on to another show. So who, who, you, you, whose fault is that, Jim? How does that, I mean, the bigger issue is how does that happen? Well, no, no, no. And, I, th and this, this, the, the question is, ultimately, can streaming media survive? And this is no different than arguing over the debt ceiling is two different forces. There are two different forces at play. Consumers want things for the same price. And it turns out that you can only have this much content for the amount of money that Netflix has to spend and to get more content, they need more money. This is a classic case of, of a business not being yeah. able to. But you're, not, you're missing my point. My point is it's not whether or not it's Netflix's fault. I know it's not Netflix's fault that their contracts run out, but as a consumer, I shouldn't have to worry about that. If Netflix is saying that I, you, I'm, I'm paying $7.99 for my streaming and this thing is available for my streaming, I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to worry about when the contract's up. I don't think so. Well, no, no. Well, don't worry. I'm sure it's not keeping you up at night. But the reality of the business <laughs> that is. is that is evolving more <laughs> rapidly than anyone in Hollywood ever expected it to to evolve. Uh, people in as recently as five years ago, you would have found most major executives would tell you that there was not going to be. Most major motion picture executives would have told you that there wasn't going to be substantial income from streaming on-demand broadcast or on-demand single-cast, unicast. Um, well, I'm looking at it from the specifically from the consumer standpoint, where where the consumer now has to make a choice, or, or either a pay sixty percent more, or b make a choice, either DVD or streaming. Well, streaming has that. You don't have to wait for it, and and you you, you know it's 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 this, this cool thing. So I start watching a show from start to finish, or I start watching, or I I queue up my movies, and I only get to three or four, and now suddenly the fifth one is gone for no for no reason that I can understand. Well, and this is why I okay. If you just want to break it down to the consumer perspective. Okay, let's break it down to the consumer perspective. $8 isn't going to break you, me, or the Gaskell triplets. <laughs> We're going to keep both, or I'm at least going to keep both, because $8, that $8 a month is insurance to have access to whatever I need to have access to, because for some reason, season two of the It Crowd is not available. But to get to season three and season four, you have to go through season two. Therefore, you just switch over to DVDs, which are easily ripped and watched through the same Apple TV exactly. interface. So dumping one. So by For the people, but some, some significant number of people may choose one or the other. And it's really a Netflix advantage to have people choose streaming and to drop the physical discs because it saves them money. Right. And it's fewer, it's fewer disc sales to the studios, and DVD sales are, are dying. And, you know, most of the sales they're making at this point are going to things like rental. So that's actually going to accelerate the switch to streaming and actually potentially give Netflix more leverage clout in the negotiations for a reasonable price that won't lead to what we've seen. Now, this is not new, Jim. This is the same discussion we've had around e-music for years. Yeah. 
It's, it's the same. This is the same thing. If you're going to, if you're going to start a new business online, streaming digital content, you have to negotiate with the content owners, and there's no telling. You can't start the business and know how much someone's going to want two years down the road when they don't understand that there's money to be made there now. Two years from now, they're going to jack up their price, and that's really what's happening. I mean, these are the same people who, during the writer's strike, but, insisted that there was not going to be any money to be made online, and therefore they should not, you know, raise the, the percentage that goes to writers for the residuals in, in home video, because DVD sales are dying, and, and there won't be any way to make money through digital media. Well, and now that- here we are. And they're jacking the prices up and leading to a, a price increase for net, net, doubling your Netflix subscription. But let me put it this way. If, if they jack the price up and their catalog doubles, then, you know. That's fine. Well, that's, that's the other thing is how much is too much depending on what you get in return. I mean, there's a point where you're going to be able to cancel your cable because there are enough options out there to either pay a flat rate for unlimited streaming for a subsection and then pick and choose on demand from other sources like Apple yeah. TV or Amazon or whatever. Yeah, I mean, to me it comes down to the only, the only reason I would want um, cable at the moment is for kind of network TV, which airs major sports stuff, and major award shows and things like that. That's about it. World Cup, ESPN, maybe that, but that's it, really. So, <clears throat> but what it comes down to, going back to Jim's point about the content and every and the gaps in service, basically, yeah, I would just move on because to me, there's there's so much out there that I I haven't watched or whatever that I'm perfectly willing to take a break from one show, move on to another one, or move on to another set of movies or whatever. In the meantime, until that show comes back, like what happened with Party Down. I watched the first season, and then the second season went away for six months, and then it came back, and then I just picked up and watched it. That's not I, frustrating to you? That's not That doesn't piss you off that it, a season's there, and then it's gone, and then it's there, it, and well, then yeah, it's gone again? Yeah, absolutely, but that's the nature of those contracts. I mean, right now you can't get season three of Party Down. But, well, right. Well, there is no season three of Party Down. Wait. There's well, that, no, wait. Maybe that's why. <laughs> No, I know, and maybe I'm more anal about about like I want to start a show and I want to watch it when I want to watch it, or I want to know that I can or I can't infinitely into the future. I mean, then maybe right. that's that's what it is. And DVDs, if I buy the fucking DVDs, then I know I can watch it whenever I want to. You're such an old man. Those days, are, those days are over. The days of unlimited access to any media I want forever—that's over. Oh, yeah, Grandpa, you're talking like some old Bolshevik. I remember when I used to own my own DVD library, and I could watch any movie ever. I'm not talking about ownage. And they couldn't take it away from me on a moment's notice. I'm not talking about ownage. I'm talking about access. And, by the way, ownage means access. What kind of idealist are you to believe that you should have access to any media you've ever paid for whenever you want to just because you've paid for it and that's all you've done so we don't think at at, at the end of the day we still talking about google plus no we're we're talking about netflix we don't think this is going to hurt netflix is what we're saying here in fact Uh, it might even help not really i don't think it'll hurt not in the long run i I can't read comments on blogs on this topic for more than two seconds because they're just insane someone's pointing to some website that i won't 
name as being, this is where I'm canceling my Netflix subscription and signing up for this site. And I go there and it says $27 for lifetime access to unlimited streaming. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's a great deal. But it's Kirk, it's lifetime access. You can do it for to the rest unlimited of your life. Streaming. Yes. What, okay. what could possibly go wrong with that? Or oh yeah, that's absolutely legitimately licensed. That's completely legal. That's that's sustainable. It's going to be here six months from now. They didn't say all that. They said lifetime. The real businesses that need to put together the kind of agreements they need to put together to rival Netflix offering are going to have to negotiate the same kind of deals that you know are causing Netflix to raise their prices. And I'm just saying that when someone comes in, they're not going to be able to undercut Netflix on pricing. Seems unlikely. This podcast is a presentation of Media Loper Bebop. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of the commissioner of Media Loper Bebop is prohibited. So here's a little inside baseball. Last week, it was Tim's turn to choose the album for our Media Loper Great Albums Hall of Fame. And while he eventually settled on the Kinks' Arthur, he initially chose the Who by Numbers, which is a very good album, maybe even a great album, but does not rise to the level of the greatest albums of all time, like many, many other Who albums. At least that was my opinion, and I'm guessing Kirk's as well. And since an album has to be unanimously agreed upon by all three of us to make our Hall of Fame, it was shot down unceremoniously. However, at the Media Lipper Bebop 4th of July retreat, board meeting, and barbecue, Tim continued to insist that it rises to the proper standard, or at least is seriously underrated, and I thought it might be fun for him to make that argument on the podcast itself. So Tim, my question to you is simple. Yes. In the universe of albums that contains Quadrophenia, Who's Next, The Who's Sell Out, My Generation, Live at Leeds, all of which I think are better than The Who by Numbers, why in the hell did you pick The Who by Numbers? Because all the other albums... We know they're classics. I want Media <laughs> Yes, Loper that's the Bebop. point. <laughs> I want Media Loper Bebop to be ahead of the curve. And by saying Quadrophenia is a classic album, it's kind of like saying, hey, the sun's hot. So, you know, it's kind of too obvious. Here's why it's great. Number one, when I was 13 years old, I went to um, the record store, and there were basically there were two choices. One was Kiss Alive, and the other one was The Who by Numbers. The Who by Numbers came out in October of '75. Like I said, I was 13 years old, and I knew The Who. I I didn't own any albums, but I knew them and I liked them. And I picked up this album, took it home, played it. Played it again and again and again, and loved, you know, just loved, fell in love with it. And a couple months, a month or so later, I think I bought Kiss Alive, and that was a great album too, and I loved that. But <clears throat> now, so wait, wait, wait. Let me make sure I get this straight. You're, you, you've decided the Who by Numbers should be in our Great Albums Hall of Fame because it's better than Kiss Alive. No, no, no. I'm, no, I'm, just, I'm just putting okay, it in. Just I'm sure. putting it in context. Okay. I'm putting it in context. Let <laughs> it come in because this is this was like the first. Like I said, this is the first Who album that I bought 
and it was the first Who album that like came out that week, and I bought it, and you know, so I I had a connection with it. Whereas you know later I went back and bought all the other Who albums, but I didn't have that immediate connection with. And you know, listening to this album, the first song Slipkid, amazing, great classic Who song. You know, it works on every level. It was just one of those things where every song, to me, seemed to tell a bit of a story. It's, it's a fucked up story. It's Pete Townsend, you know, who's going through one of those periods where he's getting drunk on brandy a lot because that's mentioned in at least three songs, I think, on the <laughs> album. And it's about his fame and security. You know, it's kind of introspective. But the, the one thing that's another thing that's great about it is it's not one of these silly concept albums. It's just. It's an album of songs, and it's just, you know, the Who, as a band, for like almost the first time in their career, you know, if you look at, go back to their first album, you know, it's got some covers and some originals and everything. Um, this is all, this is all originals. There's no overlying concept, unless you want to say it's kind of, you know, some people called it the Pete Townsend suicide album or the suicide note or whatever. But it, to me, it just it, to me it, it signified a band in transition. They were going from, you know, they they obviously wanted to get away from that stereotype of being a, a rock a opera band. band. <laughs> no, the greatest, greatest band ever. The no. greatest band in the world. That's no, they, they wanted to transition out of being, you know, known for just oh well, what's the next rock opera, Pete? And it's like no, I've just got a collection of fucking songs this time, and they're you know they're all. With with one or two exceptions, they're all really good songs. And um, you know, however much I booze, obviously talking about his booze things. But however much I booze, there ain't no way out. There ain't no way out. I don't care what you say, boy. There ain't no Squeezebox again, another great single. No, no, and then also no. Squeezebox, even when I was 14 years old and it was all over the radio, I realized it was just a bad double entendre. Mom's got a squeezebox she wears on her chest, but when daddy comes home, he never gets no rest. But it's a fun, it's a great, it's a, it's a great, there's yeah. nothing wrong with the song though. It's, it's fine. It's a, it's a, it's catchy. It's fun. It's but what it does is it breaks them out of that mold of, you know, Good. <clears throat> the whole no the the mold of being you know some uh, fucked up teenager who's either deaf dumb or blind or out of his head on you know the train and on amphetamines and stuff. It's just kind of a different, you know. We it's it's it, the reason I liked it is because it, it it they just went for the straight pop single, you know, and it's. If you if you took it from any other band, you'd say this is a great song. So why isn't it great from the Who? Anyway, moving on. No, 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 no. Hang on, no, no, no. Hang on. We're talking about Who singles here, okay? Meaty Big, Meaty Big and Bouncy is full of singles that have no ties to concept albums that are silly, that are fun. 
every single one of which, with the exception of possibly Happy Jack, which I just always found overrated. Yeah, but that was like a generation prior. That was like... But a generation. <clears throat> I mean, I'm sorry, The Seeker came out in 1971, so we're talking four years, okay? That was, that was a long time back then. <laughs> the, you can't uh, tell me that they weren't writing great singles that had nothing to do with, with concepts and they I were just understand. silly songs yeah. in and of themselves. Yeah, but Squeezebox, there's nothing, what I'm saying is, I mean, no, it's not their best song, it's not their best single, but it's a good single. There's nothing wrong with the single. It's fine. Well, okay, um, there's nothing wrong with it is not to the standards of the greatest albums or the greatest singles of all time, which is the standard we're trying to put here. Let me just add my two cents Go for what it for what it's worth. I can't disagree with Tim when he says, you know, he was how old were you? Thirteen. Thirteen, and you had the money to go out and buy an album, and you had a choice between two, and you bought this, which means you made the right choice, right. and it had a big impression on you. And so I can see how you might have a different perspective on this album than Jim and I have because you've had a different relationship with it. Well, I was 17 maybe when I bought it. My relationship with it though is this. When you sent out the message saying this is gonna be your, the album you wanted to do, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And then I thought, when was the last time I listened to that album? And I couldn't remember. So I thought to myself, maybe I should listen to it again. So, and you know, I like, you may have heard I like The Who. Mm. I went to my mix, and it's not in iTunes. And I thought, that's really strange, it's not in iTunes. So I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to go get the CD out of the deep storage in the library, <laughs> in, in, in the garage. And so I'm going through my CD collection, and it turns out I never bought the CD. <laughs> mm. Which means that I haven't listened to it since I owned it on vinyl. And so then I thought to myself, okay, this may be the biggest oversight of all time. Right. So I went to eMusic and downloaded it because my e-music rates have gone up, but it's okay because they've got the complete Who, which I can download at a competitive price, lo slightly lower than Amazon, and there it is, and I'm listening to the Who by Numbers in iTunes eventually, after going through all of the sources where it's supposed to be, having going out and buying it, instantaneous gratification, and I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, there's a reason why, for me, this is sort of like a left out Who album. It's. Say it. The list of albums Jim mentioned at the beginning of this are mm. all ahead of the Who by numbers. And I think, I really believe that it's sort of a mediocre Who album. Okay. From the waist on down, I'm dreaming, but I feel tired about. I'm dreaming of the day that a cold shower helps my health. In 19, for 1975, it was considered the 10th best album. By who? Village Voice. 
thousand jobs. Okay, so 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 let me let me let me guess. At least nine of those were probably things like blood on the tracks and the basement tapes and born to run and. Yeah. Right, so if any of those classics had not been recorded, it would have been number one. Right, and had you chosen any of those albums, there wouldn't be any issue with putting it in our Hall of Fame. Well, it's in my Hall of Fame. (laughs) Um, Well, the thing is, here, Robert Christgau gave it a B+. plus. A B plus! A B plus! That's fine, I think it's a B plus. The All Music Guy gave it four out of five stars. <laughs> gave it a great review. And Rolling Stones is very positive. Yeah. <laughs> These would all be things that Artie Puffkin <laughs> would have put <laughs> in the ad for Spinal Tap. <laughs> Chris Segal gave it a B plus. It got four stars. Well, here's here's the other thing I like about it, and this is purely a musical thing. Um, if you listen to the album, and I know you know, I know every no to this album so do I. It since I was 13 but it's it's one of those albums that every every song sounds like you know they are all playing in the same room they're all playing live it's it's the music the interaction between you know everybody is is great they're they're it's the last great Keith Moon album it's um, you know the, the synthesizers are gone the the over lots of overdubs and all that's gone uh, it, they just sound unified, and it sounds, you know, like they, they totally sound like a band. And, and maybe not their peak form, but we're, we're talking about one of the best bands of all time. So, you know, you, you, it's Yeah, but hard. Success Story is a weak-ass entwistle song, regardless of its inclusion. I <laughs> love Success Story. <laughs> Imagine a man. Eh. I mean, okay, yes. Imagine a man's the weakest song on the album. Slip Kid, However Much I Booze, Dreaming from the Waste. How many friends in hand or face? That's five out of ten. Well, blue, red, and gray, uh, to me, even though it's a, just Pete and a ukulele and, and John Entwistle doing the brass is, is one of their, I think it's a minor classic. Success Story, I think, is a great song. Uh, they Are All In Love is, again, a great song. And it's just a great band album. Like I said, half the songs in this album are great Who songs, no question. There, and, and, and maybe three or four of them are top-tier songs. But the other half aren't. And that's my point. Unlike, unlike the Who Sell Out or, or Quadrophenia or, 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 or Who's Next or, or even the first album, which just... All of which are, have the stellar songwriting and stellar playing and some of the best musical performances that anybody's ever done ever. And this is good, but with the Who, good don't cut it. Great cuts it. It's in my Hall of Fame. It's on my <laughs> wall of I'm, fame. I have to say, Jim. Yes. I'm on your side. I'm sorry. You're, you're sounding sort of like a teabagger there. <laughs> 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 the founding father said the Who should be great. Oh, sir. Just one more thing. One more thing, Tim. I'm first. Okay, one more thing. We all, speaking of albums, Kirk, Jim, and I, you spent a lot of time at Tower Records, did we not? Oh, God, we I did. live there. Yes. Yeah. Well, right now, if you go to... Uh, Tower Records documentary on Facebook. You can find out about a Tower Records documentary, which is being made by Colin Hanks and uh, the actor Colin Hanks. And 
He's a, he's a big music fan. He's also a Giants fan, Jim, if you follow him on Twitter. I um, don't. He's a huge Giants fan. And he's putting together this documentary. They're trying to raise money for it. And um, it's to tell the story, the, the rise and fall of Tower Records. And it sounds pretty fascinating, uh, all about the founder um, and the, the beginning, the humble beginnings in Sacramento to the uh, the empire worldwide you know kind of empire and then the the failure and or the kind of shuttering of every store in 2006 I think so anyway if you if you want to find out more about it just go to a Tower Records documentary on Facebook and you can help raise money for it. One more thing, Kirk. So this past weekend, Cassio and I went to uh, the Tim Burton retrospective at LACMA, which is. In a word, amazing, huge, enormous, big. It's um, retrospective, and by retrospective, they mean going back to work he was creating in high school. Wow. Um, he won, <laughs> he won a contest for the Burbank, that the Burbank Sanitation Department was hosting <laughs> to design an ad campaign to uh, promote recycling. And there were actually in like 1970, I don't know, like three or four, there were the sides of every garbage truck in Burbank had this huge sign designed by Tim Burton. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That at this point in his artistic development was mostly a Mad Magazine ripoff. (laughs) Right. But still the fact that that happened and he became Tim Burton and now it's part of this retrospective is pretty cool. So they go all the way back to that kind of stuff through, you know, his film career, showing illustrations, painting, sculpture, short films, lost episodes of television shows. He did a... um, he did a Hansel and Gretel for the Disney Channel in 1983, in like their first year on the air. And it only aired once, and then it was lost. Oh, my and, God. Uh, and that's airing, that's running continuously uh, at the retrospective. Uh, Batman costumes, Edward Scissorhands, um, props from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah. You, need to, you need to make a reservation, I think, because you go in, it's like there will be a 2 o'clock crowd and then a 2.30 crowd. So it's, it's not like packed with people. It's, it's, there are a lot of people there, but you are never in a position where you really can't kind of like see the art and walk around. Right. I, I, I really do want to go to this because uh, although Tim's movies are oftentimes a bit disappointing. Um, Recently recently well yeah in the last 10 years really um you know he's uh, he, I, I respect him immensely as an artist he's, he's incredible one more thing it's entirely possible that by the time this podcast gets posted and most certainly by the time you listen to it Carmageddon will have already started for those of you who don't live in the L.A. area, Carmageddon is the name given by the press for the potential massive traffic jam that could be caused by the shutting down of the 405 between the 10 and the 101. Which, look it up on Google to see what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Just look it up. It's it's like, what, 13 miles of road. As this is one of the most traffic freeways on Earth, the shutting down of it could have the ripple effect for miles and miles in all directions. I've had my commute take an extra half hour to an hour because a single traffic light at Los Feliz and Riverside went down. So yeah, a post-rapture-like traffic jam is certainly within the realm of possibilities. Though my guess is, because everybody's been hearing about it for weeks, people could have already shifted their paths in such a way that nothing will happen. My guess, that's probably what's going to happen. Nothing. It'll be like Y2K and people will go, why did you even bother about it? Because nothing happened. Which, of course, is the reason that nothing happened, because we've been talking about it for weeks now. What if it coincides with the rapture? Well, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> well, I think Jesus could walk down the Sepulveda Pass, you know, and have like, he'll, he'll, he'll be seen by the entire San Fernando Valley. I think it's a perfect stage. Well, one of my friends said that we should try to get a picture of us standing on the 405, completely uh, empty. Good luck with that. Yeah, I know, exactly. Have... You've got to get to it to take the picture. Well, you I'm... could hang glide from, oh, Ma- from Malibu. Like like, like Roger Daltrey and Tommy. Yeah, I'm exactly. Just... Exactly <laughs> what I was thinking, like Roger Daltrey and Tommy. And, and, and Roger Daltrey and Tommy hang glide, the, the hang gliding and then sang the vocals on the Who By Numbers. There you go. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Carmageddon. I think it's going to have a ripple effect all the way up to Seattle um, and all the way down to Mexico City. That's just my prediction. And that's it for Mini Loper Bebop episode 11, Carmageddon time. As always, I'd like to thank Tim Gaskell. I'd love to see you next time if I can make it back from Carmageddon. That's all. And Kirk Biglioni. Please join my hangout. (laughs) I'm Jim Connolly, and if Los Angeles survives, we'll catch you guys next week. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel.